0: Take your Bibles this morning with me, if you would, please, and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. You know, for me, one of the greatest aspects of worshiping together with the church is hearing the saints sing. Hearing brothers and sisters behind me and next to me, uh, and their voices going up before the Lord. Uh, Some of you are very talented uh, with your vocals. Others of you uh, keep practicing. But nonetheless, it is beautiful. It is wonderful. And there is really nothing better for my own personal heart. I would choose listening to you guys sing to the Lord over any CD or song available. Uh, It means that much to me. So thank you. And uh, thank you for seeking the Lord. Well, if you know me and if you've listened or remember some of the stories I've uh, shared from this point, ...throughout the last couple of years, you know that as a young man, I had a really poor concept of danger. Uh, I I wasn't sure what was dangerous and what wasn't. Uh, Throughout high school, middle school, upper elementary, uh, a group of my friends and myself, we had very little judgment uh, that was sound, and we were um, highly, highly misplacing our fears... There are things that we still get together occasionally that our parents find out that we did today, and they still have a look of horror on their face. My parents have actually said to me, it's amazing you're alive today. Whether that be coming home burned and bloodied because we shot fireworks at each other, or other detrimental things to our health, I cannot tell you, and I cannot count how many bones were broken, fingers cut off hair set on fire, all kinds of things. And that's because I had a very poor concept, as did my other friends, of what danger really is. And as I've reflected upon that and shared those stories, I've come to realize it's really a trait of adolescence and immaturity to not be able to distinguish between danger and the warnings of danger in life. And the opposite of that can be said and and be true, A mark of maturity is being able to distinguish between danger and safety and what is good and what is treacherous. As an immature, young, younger man, I could not distinguish between the two. Between good, wholesome fun and dangerous activities. But that's not just a statement of life in general, is it? That's probably more applicable to Christianity, the Christian faith. Maturity is being able to distinguish between what is dangerous spiritually and what is good spiritually. Around every corner, one of the most sobering realities for us is that there lay dangers waiting to engulf the human soul. Don't think that that statement is not true. That statement is more true than we want to... to admit then we want to realize around every corner a danger lays waiting to engulf a human soul peter would say it this way in first peter 5 8 your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour we have a very real enemy don't we Listen to the language of what Peter says. He's an adversary. He's seeking. And he's wanting to devour. It is not a game when we deal with spiritual dangers. God would say to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. Sin lays crouching. And it's waiting to pounce on you. And overtake you. We have a very, very... Real enemy church, and he would do us harm if he could. And it is a sobering reality. He lays snares and traps all around us, and at every turn and every minute of the day, Paul would say over and over again to those he was writing, Avoid the snares of the devil. They're frequent, they're common. Now, as Christians, I would say we are mostly immune from the wickedness of the enemy. And what I mean by that is, yes, we still fall prey to his lies and we still give in to his tempting powers towards us, but our souls are not in danger of him because we are kept by Christ. So we are mostly immune from the worst danger known to humanity, from our spiritual enemy, the devil. Our souls are secure in Jesus. But there are those who still remain unguarded by the Holy Spirit. And they find themselves in eternal danger of the enemy. Most notably, I think one of the most condemning aspects and tools of the enemy is convincing people that they are saved when in fact they are not. You know that is a reality, don't you? A false false assurance of salvation. Christ says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, There will be those who stand before me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And I will say to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. There will be people who die and meet Christ, think they belong with him in heaven, and truly do not. They think they are saved, and they are not. That is a danger of the enemy. And let me make it clear to you, Satan would love nothing more than to convince you you are saved and have a salvation from God when in fact you do not. And he will be content with your church attendance. He will be content with your social justice. He will be content with your good ethics so long as your soul stays in a place of eternal damnation. My great fear not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, and specifically in our context, my great fear and passion is that many people fall into this most wide and most dangerous trap. Some even jump in headfirst, Buying the lies of the enemy. Now, I would ask you this morning, what is that great and dangerous trap of Satan? What is the most Dangerous hindrance preventing genuine saving faith in a person's life. The most common dangerous obstacle that keeps someone from trusting in Jesus. What is it? Is it atheism, believing that there is no God, that he doesn't exist? Is it a false religion, thinking that there's many ways to God or many different types of God? Is it apathy? I just don't care. I'm indifferent. I'm agnostic. I don't think it's any of those things. I would contend for us in our specific context. That the greatest danger to real saving faith. Is morality. Morality. Morality is a sense of false assurance of salvation. Based on the fact of good behavior. And Pure moral motives. You know how many people think they're saved because they have good behaviors and they think their motives are pure? Morality for salvation is the idea that behavior change and godly actions can make a difference in your eternal standing before God. Let me say that again because this is what I mean when I'm talking about morality this morning. It is the idea that behavior change can make a difference in your eternal standing before God. Now let me be clear. We are supposed to be... God wants us to be and we are designed to be good moral creatures who reflect God's character. That's what morality is and it's true biblical definition, reflecting the character of God. We're supposed to do that. We're called to do that. But the danger is when morality begins to get in the way of the gospel and it begins to let its lines be blurred. The danger comes when people think morality is the end goal of the makeshift gospel. Morality is not the end goal of the gospel. Behavior change is not the end goal of the gospel. The danger lies when people start using their behaviors to measure their salvation and confirm their redemption. And they think that behavior change and their good morals is a path towards salvation, favor, and acceptance before God. That's where the danger of morality lies And that is very prevalent today. If only I will live as I'm supposed to live. Then I'll be good. I know that I'm wicked and I've messed up. I just need to correct my actions. Then God will be pleased and happy with me. This line of thinking says behavior changes what God desires. And behavior changes what people need to please God even worse this line of thinking says behavior change is the point of the gospel that the gospel makes better people and that's its point point. and better people are what makes God happy and better people are what ha- or who have the favor of God that is not the gospel Morality as a tool or means of salvation is a watered-down Christian life. It removes the requirement of not simply being moral, but being Christ-like. The point of the gospel is not behavior change, church. It is your heart. Your behavior change is a side product of what the gospel Really intends to impact. Ravi Zacharias says it this way He says, Jesus does not offer to make bad people good, but dead people alive. That's the gospel. Not making bad people good, but dead people alive. The gospel comes to make you new, the gospel comes to conquer your heart not make you better. Christ didn't say, go and reform the old self. He says, put it away. Cast it off. Colossians 3, put it to death. Put to death what is earthly in you. Don't reform it. Don't toy with it. Don't try to make it better. Don't try to make it moral. Don't try to instill good ethics in your worldly life. Put it to death. Be born again. The goal of the gospel is not better behavior. It is new birth. New birth. Because the gospel's underlying and constant fact is this. That we are creatures in need of redemption and salvation. We are creatures who have sinned against our creator. Who have transgressed the holy God. And no amount of external behavior change fixes that. The answer is not, I need to live better. The answer is, I need a new heart. See, I think most people know they're in this fallen, sinful state. The question becomes, what do we do about it? I personally don't think it's hard to convince somebody that they're imperfect. I think what's hard is to convince somebody of the correct solution. And we even ourselves are guilty of trying to course correct in our own power. Course correct ourselves. Attempting to correct our behavior and change our ways that we might be better people and incur the favor of God that way. We ourselves are prone to think that our behavior defines our standing or our falling before God. Behavior matters, but it does not determine your eternal destination in heaven. We tend to think ourselves that if I only follow those moral principles and moral standards of God. Then I'll be set for eternity. I'm sinful, so I need to change my actions. It's so pervasive within Christian circles today we even try to fix the world's problems with moral principles. We watch the world cave and we watch the world in go into chaos and we begin to put on a facade of mora- morality. And that facade will only mask and cover up the symptoms and behaviors of a fallen humanity. Church, it's not moral principles that needs. To be placed over the world's actions. And it's not moral principles that need to be pushed within the world. It's the gospel. The gospel brings change. The gospel is the only thing that addresses the heart. The truth is you are sinful. Beyond measure. We're all sinful beyond what we can even fathom. We have really finite understandings of transgressing a purely eternally holy God. And even yet, in our finite understanding of the matter, we know how serious sin is. We are sinful beyond measure and we need God to give us a new heart, new desires, a new nature. You can't please God by being better. You only please God by being new through Christ. The truth is, all human efforts at decency and morality are laced With human depravity. None of our actions are good enough. None of our moral motives. Christian ethics are going to be good enough. And I pray we don't ignore this danger. I think it's more prevalent than we care to admit. Not only are unbelievers buying into this notion that I can change my behavior. And then maybe I'll be good enough to go to heaven. Not only are unbelievers buying this notion that it's going to be better people that make a better society. Christians buying it too. I know my salvation's in Christ, but I have to be better for God to like me. To be better for God to love me. Our answer to sin and evil is not better behavior, church. It is the gospel. It's the answer of being made new and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and under the dominion of God's kingdom. That's what matters. And that's what Jesus is sharing out of Luke 11 this morning. We come down to Luke 11, verse 24. And to be honest with you, it's a very intriguing and difficult text of Scripture. He begins today's text by sharing a parable, but he doesn't give a lot of explanation to it or clarity On his point. We can combine the context and other scripture passages to know what he's saying here. But it requires a little bit of digging and explanation. For the most part. Jesus is saying that there are those who try to tidy up their lives without surrendering their heart to God. And that's as useless for your redemption as any other good work. Jesus ties us back here to verse 23, if you remember from last week, where he has just been accused of um, demonic influence, exercising demonic powers. And he's made this remarkable defense. And in verse 23, he says to the crowd, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I'll give you two options concerning me. You can be with me or against me, and you have to choose. Choose. That means we have to make a conscious decision about Jesus. You have to come to an understanding and make a choice regarding Christ. Do I believe Him or do I not? And those are the only two options. And Jesus is going to say, all your good behavior and all your moral motives mean nothing before God if you have not first chosen me. All your good actions, all your good behavior, all your your decent lifestyle means nothing if Christ is not king of your heart. That's the point of what we come to find in today's text. So let's read it, if you would, in Luke 11, verse 24. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says... I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it, goes and begin, and then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there as well. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Verse 27, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said... Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's an intriguing parable that Jesus begins to share in verses 24 through 26. He tells of a man who's cleaned up his life and tidied up his actions. The main point, however, of the parable is the unclean spirit. He's tying back right to verse 14, where he just cast out the unclean spirit. And he's playing off of that to illustrate the point Of the the purpose of choosing him. And that you have to make a conscious choice of choosing him. And he shares this attitude of this unclean spirit. this, This demon presence. The truth comes down to this. We sometimes can overcome spiritual obstacles. But if Christ is not dominating our heart. It's fruitless. This unnamed man. Has this unclean spirit living in him and jesus doesn't just say he's living in him he says he's taking up residency in this person even the spirit itself in verse the end of verse 24 refers to the person as my house my dwelling place it's an indwelling spirit Now, for an unknown reason, this unclean spirit in the parable has left the person. We don't know if that's exorcism, if he's decided he's no longer a suitable habitat. He's just voluntarily leaving the individual. Jesus doesn't tell us that. And in fact, it's not very important to the point of the parable. Instead, Jesus describes this unclean spirit is left and he's roaming through these restless, waterless places. Now, mind you. The spirit doesn't need water. Jesus is communicating barren and desolate travels of this unclean spirit. And he decides, I'm no longer satisfied roaming around. I'm going to return from where I came my house. And in verse 25, the spirit returns, and while he's been gone, the man has been tidying up his life, he's been putting things into order. Putting things into perspective. We can call it self-reformation. We can call it good moral behavior. Self-control and order and discipline now exist in his life. He could probably be defined as a more upstanding and decent citizen. The wickedness has left his life. And now he's trying to be good again. And the unclean spirit's. Travels have turned up nothing better. So he comes back and he finds this man in this kind of way. Put in order. There's no longer chaos. He's no longer influenced by evil powers. The only problem here for the man, which turns out to be good news for the demon, is that no matter how nicely you order your current life, This man's heart is still unoccupied. The demon returns to an empty heart. Put in order, well behaved, nice, swept, cleaned, striving for good things, but unoccupied. It is not redeemed. It is not under the dominion of God. And Jesus' point is it's still subject to captivity. And the demon sees the uh, certain uh, situation here, current situation. And he decides in verse 26 to go get seven other spirits, more evil. They all eight return and occupy this man. And surely, the last state is worse than the first. Why is the last state worse than the first? Well, yes, most commonly and understandably here, The demons are occupying him. That makes it much worse. There's seven more. More evil. But I think it can be carried on a little bit further. This man had a profound experience. The man in the parable had a demon possessing him, an unclean spirit. That unclean spirit leaves. He's experienced liberation, he's experienced freedom from his oppression. And he began to get his life in order. He thinks things are on the right track. He thinks things are going well. Then he's possessed again. The last state is worse than the first because he could either, one, think that he was saved before, or two, he could lose all hope of ever being saved. Now we must ask this question, Why didn't the man have security from the unclean spirit? He left him once. Why was he not secure when the spirit came back? That's really the most crucial point and question we ask. Now, we know that this man has to be an unbeliever before that demon left. And we have to know that he's an unbeliever since the demon returned. Why is that? Because no demon occupies a dwelling of the Holy Spirit. So this man has begun in the parable an unbeliever and he ends the parable an unbeliever. Even though his life's been rearranged, even though he's rejected wickedness, even though he's displaying morally good behavior. The fact is, he does not have salvation. His heart is still open and empty the lesson here, church, is clear. Good behavior does not create a new heart, nor does it protect you from more wickedness. The only liberation from the sin in our lives is Christ. When the Steeman comes back, church, he finds a moral individual, but he does not find a man under the care of Christ. And there is a major, major difference. People cling to morality for hope, for protection from evil, for security for the afterlife, Jesus says it is worthless if I do not reign and rule in your hearts. The danger of morality is that you might think you are safe, And secure, but in reality, you are not. You might think you're on the right track walking with God and walking towards God, but Jesus says you are still as open and susceptible to evil as ever before. Your actions do not address your internal problem. The only heart that is safe is the heart that is occupied by Christ. What contrast from The text before. Or he's just cast out this demon. And then in verse 23. He brings people to choose. You pick me. Or you're against me. Oh and by the way. I'm the only thing that secures a heart. I'm the only thing. That protects from evil. I'm the only thing. That sets you right with God. The option still stands. And Jesus has just elevated the result i fear church many people work diligently and they work very hard to try to course correct their lives i fear many people know that their fault they're at fault and they're wrong and they think their solution is to behave better i do believe many people buckle down and formulate more noble, moral lives. They try to be better people and they try to be good people and they try to earn their standing before God. Scripture says these are only as filthy rags in the face of pure holiness. God does not count our good intentions towards salvation. God does not count our moral motives towards our salvation. And God does not count our trendy acts of kindness toward salvation. Romans 4, Paul says the only thing God counts towards our righteousness is faith in Jesus. And it is only the heart that is occupied by Christ. It is only the heart that's made new, that's been replaced, that's been given the righteousness of Jesus Himself. That's the only heart that will be welcomed into the presence of God. Not a heart that's tried really hard. Not a person that has attempted to be better. Many people tidy up their lives and yet they're still lost. Many people play Christian and yet they are not Christian. And many people think they will be good enough before God and they will not be good enough before God. This man thought he was going to be okay. And the last state is worse than the first. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 27 and 28. And we've learned first from the parable that self-reformation and self-correction does not save or protect us. So we have a question. What do we do then? And Jesus, as wonderful as He is, doesn't leave us hopeless or helpless. He instructs us on what we need to do. If the answer isn't behaving better, being a better person, having the morals of God, if, if those things aren't the answer to pleasing God with our lives, then what is the answer? Well, something takes place in the midst of this conversation. A woman stands up and exclaims something above the crowd. Now, she's a courageous woman. What she says is accurate. What she says is noble. She says it in front of the same crowd that has just accused Jesus of being a demon. So they're saying, the religious leaders are saying, Jesus, you're a demon. She's saying, no, blessed is the womb from which you came and the breast at which you nursed. The woman doesn't know it, but she's actually fulfilling Mary's prophecy about herself. In Luke chapter 1, verse 48, Mary says... For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Here's the first example of that. This woman is calling her blessed. And Jesus does not disagree with her. In fact, he actually does agree with her. But Jesus takes it a little further. He says the only reason Mary was blessed was because she o- obeyed God. And the only reason anybody's blessed is because they obey God. You see, oftentimes people would praise the mother of someone who was noble or significant or powerful or important. It was really a way of complimenting that individual by complimenting their mother. That's what this woman is doing. I want to compliment you, Christ. I want to praise you, Christ, and say, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. And then in verse 28, Jesus responds to this woman in the crowd eagerly. And he says, blessed rather. And the Greek there actually means something a little bit more significant. It means, yes, but. So Jesus actually agrees with the woman's statement. And he says, but you're lacking a little bit. Let me enhance it. Let me improve it. Let me add to it. Blessed rather, yes, but. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. These two actions that center solely upon the word of God. Two words, hear and keep. What does Jesus mean? Well, hear means much more than just with your ears. How many people heard the voice of Christ and were not right with God? Now how many people sitting here this morning can hear the gospel preached over them and are not right with God? Jesus isn't talking about hearing with your ears. He's talking about hearing with the depths of your heart. Hearing into the core of your soul hearing the words of God and letting them resound in your very spirit. It's a hearing that takes place beyond understanding. It's a spiritual hearing. It means an absorption, a dominance, a hearing with your spiritual ears. And then He says, Blessed are not just those who hear, but also keep it. By the way, you can't have one without the other. The blessing belongs to the one who does both. And he says, keep it. And that's difficult for us, isn't it? Because who here has kept the word of God perfectly? So what does he mean? He just told us through this parable, your moral behavior change isn't going to save you. So why does he say keep it in verse 28, referring to the word of God? Behavior change doesn't save you. He means, believe it. Because we have to ask, what does He mean by the Word of God? We call the Bible the Word of God, and that it is. And we should. And we treat it as such. But Christ is not referencing the New Testament here. And He may be referencing a little bit of the Old Testament, but what He's really referencing is the point of the whole Bible. It's the Gospel of Christ. That God has come to save sinners through the sacrifice of His Son. Jesus says, blessed are those who hear that and keep it. Blessed are those who hear the gospel and believe it. And trust it. And submit to it. Here's the contrasting picture. You can be the man who tidies up his house and is no better off. Or you can be the one who hears the gospel and believes it. Jesus says that is the one who is blessed. That is the heart of God sending his son. More than a well behaved life, more than good works, it's the gospel conquering our hearts and bringing about newness. Where a heart of sin has been replaced with a heart for God. Jesus says that's what matters. That's what's blessed. That's what's saved. You don't need to act better to please God. You need to hear the Word of God and keep it. You don't need to change your lifestyle and your behavior to earn God's favor because you can't. You need to cast off wickedness and turn to Christ in faith to be saved. This man in the parable, he cast off wickedness, but he did not fill his heart with Jesus. And he was soon occupied again. And blessing, according to Christ, isn't just dispelling evil from our life and wicked behavior from our life. Blessing is actually being filled up with Jesus. Trusting in Him only for salvation. He died on the cross and rose again that He might make us righteous Himself. You cannot make yourself righteous. What a beautiful contrasting picture to stress the point that you cannot do it. You get that? You are going to stand before God. Naked and exposed. And give an account to Him. Hebrews. And you answer before a holy, perfect God. For every act you've ever committed and lived through. And you cannot do nothing. You cannot do anything before Him. To better your situation. The only thing that matters in that moment is Christ. And if you have heard the gospel of Jesus and believed it and trusted in him. Heard that He died on the cross, taking your sins upon Himself so that He might pay the penalty of your sin. He rose again that you might be eternally justified before God. It is hearing that and trusting in that that matters on the day when you stand before God. That alone. Many people will be the, the man in the parable tidying up his heart and sweeping it and putting it. His life in order and trying to be good moral people. And Jesus says that's not going to matter an iota before God. The only thing that will matter is hearing and believing the gospel. Don't get the two things reversed in order. Hearing and believing the gospel brings about a moral life and a moral change. But a moral life and a moral change will never bring about the effects of the gospel. And that, according to Christ, is what matters. So, what about you this morning? Chances are there are many unbelievers here who fit that mold. Maybe even those who thought they were saved and are not saved because they've been trusting in their moral actions and behavior. And they've tried to tidy up their lives and they're still as wide open as ever before. Empty hearts. Well, you can turn to Christ and be saved. Today, you can hear and keep the Word of God by believing in Jesus and trusting in Him for salvation. Maybe you are a believer, and you still struggle with taking security in your moral actions for your acceptance before God. And maybe you need to stop and say, Lord, you're my only avenue for acceptance before God. Help me to trust in the Gospel more. Maybe you're a believer here and you think, I'm secure in my salvation, but I've never thought about living a moral life. Maybe you need to know what the effects of the gospel are. Bringing about a life lived for Christ. Whatever is going on in your heart, whatever the Lord may be showing you, you have a duty to respond. Again, verse 23, whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You have a choice to make concerning Christ. A conscious choice. And I hope that you make it today. Lord, we are all guilty of trying to be better behaved people for the for the sake of acceptance. And there is a beautiful tension here, Lord, I don't want to misrepresent your word. You do want us to be better behaved people, but you first and foremost want us to be saved people, born again people. And that is the only way way that true, lasting change comes in our lives. We're all guilty, Lord, of trying to change our lives without the Gospel, without You. And there are some who even trust in their own actions, and their own behavior changes for their eternal destination. That's not how it works. Oh God, I, I cannot stress enough the importance of a text like this. But I know Your Spirit can and will. Help us yield to You. And would You continue to move and work within us this text. Drive it home, O Lord. That the lost may be saved. And that Your children may come to a greater faith and understanding of the Gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen.